Security policy is a document that keeps your users safe, except when it doesn't. Is it because your security policy is completely unwieldy or because your users think that it shouldn't apply to them? In this episode of the On-Premise IT Podcast, we're going to debate whether or not your security policy should always be followed. Welcome to the On-Premise IT Podcast, the only podcast that dares to be both on topic and on location. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and each episode we bring you the perspectives of a group of IT luminaries, real experts in their field on a variety of enterprise IT topics. I'd like to take a moment for our panelists to introduce themselves before we jump into the premise for today's episode, starting with Brian. Hi, everybody. I am Brian Knutson. I do many an IT thing, um, having been everywhere from marketing to actual practitioner. So lots of experience looking at this industry in a lot of different ways. I'm Jesper Wongers from Germany. I run the uh, cybersecurity incident response team at GData Advanced Analytics, and I've done various security things over the last 20 years, probably. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. As you can tell from our lineup, we have some security experts in the house. And where there are security experts, there are security issues that need to be dealt with. And those security issues are governed by a security policy most of the time, except when they're not, because security policies always need to be followed, right? No, I, I, I'm going to start this one off because even I can't keep a straight face after that introduction. We all know that the security policy is really like the Pirates Code in the Pirates of the Caribbean. It's more like a set of suggestions, guidelines, if you will. Nobody ever violates the security policy. Just ask a certain engineer who got uh, his entire company invaded by checking his personal Gmail account from his work laptop recently. Yeah. Um, things like that happen. And uh, I, I just had a customer that um, had all their data basically stolen because they put all their passwords and everything into a account on their Gmail account and or in the folder on, the, on their Gmail account. And uh, somebody got the password from somewhere probably um, because they're using it everywhere else too. So yeah, um, that can go wrong. And that's that's uh, an entirely different matter to discuss is the fact that people tend to reuse the same passwords over and over again, and they don't rotate them because usually there is a rotation policy in uh, in corporate America. And I know a guy who would just add another number to the end of his policy. My favorite one was uh, he had one password that expired every 30 days. So he just changed them every 30 days so that they were all the same every time. And I'm like, you're doing the right thing, but for the wrong reasons, and you're doing it incorrectly. So, I mean... One of the things that I, I love to talk about here, and, and we've all seen it, and, and nobody has to raise their hand, is the fact that certain people inside of the organization have clear exceptions to the security policy because they are the people who write the paychecks. Um, I have worked in organizations in the past where the CEO had certain rules that nobody else had, and they were allowed to um, ignore certain rules that nobody else was allowed to ignore. Do we set ourselves up for failure when we create these snowflake scenarios that allow certain groups or certain individuals to um, uh, evade our best efforts to keep them safe? I mean, yes. The answer there, I think, is fairly obvious. Um, enhanced by the fact that those people who write the paychecks are the, are the, are the squeaky wheel. They're the noisy ones that tend to, to get their way when they want them because one, they have the power and two, because they 
um, are are the people that need to be quote unquote the most efficient in the company because they have the most to do. Um, so we, we do allow them to cut corners sometimes. Um, the unfortunate side effect is, is that they oftentimes have access to some of the most critical data at the same time. So we end up with this duality of, yeah, you can, you can subvert some of our policies, which is never a good idea, but you're also going to put us in the biggest, the biggest risk scenario. Now, granted, they, hopefully, hopefully do not have sysadmin access and root level access and those types of things. Um, and, and I say that in the way I say it, because we all know that that's not always the case, especially in smaller companies, but that, you know, ultimately like getting to systems is a means to an end. It's a means to getting to the critical data. If they already have access to that critical data directly, then they don't need to they don't need to get super user access. They just need to get the right account. And of course, when we talk about, um, you know, phishing attempts and those, those spear phishing attempts that focus specifically on an individual, because they're the ones that are most likely to have access to the information I want. The CEOs, the CFOs, the CTOs, the CIOs, those are the obvious ones to go for. And um, the biggest problem here is that those are usually the ones who are not really um, cautious enough. So um, they have the best data and they're not as, um, well, I'm, I'm very curious about every email I get, like is somebody trying to trick me? Because I expect everybody to try to trick me, um, which was also interesting because when I was working at Airbus, I had no admin rights on my laptop. And a lot of people kept asking me like, hey, you're in cybersecurity. Why don't you have admin access on your laptop? Because you're good enough to have it and not do any uh, do anything wrong. And I was like, I don't want to have admin access because if anything goes wrong, I am to blame. So um, being just a normal user is much better and I can still do what I need to do with it. Um, yeah, that's also what the reason why my father got an iPhone from me because he can't do less stupid things with it than on an Android phone. And I think that that kind of speaks to the way that some policy is crafted is we don't necessarily put blocks in place. We don't put up big flashing lights that say don't do this. We just limit the ability to do things in general. I mean, one of the biggest, talking about mobile devices, one of the biggest things that I know that we've, we've encountered over the years is the idea of VPNs. On Apple devices, you can use VPNs, but in very specific scenarios, and that's that. And for certain VPN clients on Android operating systems, you have to have root access to the phone to do that. Well, when you get root access to the phone, that opens you up to a lot of other problems that can possibly happen. The other one that la I laugh about was uh, back when jailbreaks were a thing that people were doing all the time to Apple devices. Uh, one of the jailbreaking tools changed the admin password for your iPhone to Alpine. And somebody decided he was going to play a joke. So he basically wrote a script to go out and telnet to all the iPhones and log in using Alpine as the default root password and pop up messages on their phones to mess with them, to show them that just because you think you're being safe, you're actually not if you haven't considered all the, uh, the uh, angles that someone can take with that. And I think that goes back to the way that we craft security policies. We put them in place with best interests in mind. You don't have local admin rights on your machine. You aren't allowed to install additional software that's not approved from a specific repository or something like that. But no sooner do we publish those guidelines than we start getting the very first, uh, hey, uh, I was wondering if you could make an exception for me just this one time because we're friends, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Like, is it harder for us to do our jobs because 
in reality, nobody really wants to be safe. They just want to do their jobs as easily as possible. Well, I mean, yeah, obviously we want to do our jobs as easily as possible. That's, that's, that's always the rub. I mean, that's, that's the tension between IT and security. A lot of times is the fact that IT is there to get things done, do it as efficiently as possible, make it as easy for people to do their job as possible. And security is there to try and keep it safe. And, you know, security gets the department of no um, moniker set to them because of that. Um, when in reality, all they're doing is, is being a traffic cop. They're trying to control the traffic and make sure that it's going the proper ways in a safe, safe manner. So their intention is to slow things down a little bit so that there there's sanity to it so that it can be controlled properly. And, and that is the root of policy. The policy is to define what is safe, what isn't safe, what people should do to, to stay within the lines. And that policy is only as good as, as its implementation. So one example, I was in a situation where they were like, okay, we need to start locking things down. We're going to take admin rights away from, from everybody's laptops, which they did without considering what any use case and any laptop was, was going or what effect that might have on people's ability to do jobs. And as somebody that has to install software to, to test, um, that needs to be able to have a little bit more flexibility than the average person. My job was impacted because of that, because they didn't take into account the proper the proper impacts of that. So, you know, while security should be first and foremost and number one, it needs to be well considered. Yeah, um, basically, security means inconvenience, sort of. Um, you try to huh, well be secure with as little inconvenience as possible but it's always hard to do. And um, I have a lot of customers who run into ransomware situations because they didn't segment their networks um, because they don't dare because it might break things. Um, and taking away admin rights from everybody is the same thing. If I do that at our parent company where uh, people are developing antivirus software, um, they will have a hard time uh, doing the things they need to do. And um, it's always a, a decision of um, rolling it out in a way that works for everyone, but makes you safer than before. So, and I can counter situations where I've been in companies where everybody of the C-level had different settings than everybody else. They didn't need to use a proxy. They didn't need to use, or didn't need to go through category filters. Um, they could just do what they want. And sometimes I've been in universities where everybody's like, hey, freedom of uh, teaching and everything. So no blockings everywhere or anywhere. Um, and that is always biting them in the behind at some point because the attackers just don't care. So I'm going to flip it around, and we talk a lot about how security policy kind of has exceptions for people to do their jobs and stuff like that. But policy is effectively just kind of a form of putting in kind of institutional controls, right? So why does IT security get a bad rap for this when we turn right around and look at something like, I don't know, auditing requirements for financial statements? Like if the auditing requirement says that two people need to sign off on this who are officers of the company, do you think that an organization can just be like, no, we'll just have one person sign off on it because this other guy, he's really busy and, and it's not really that big of a deal. Is the difference in the enforcement of what happens when the policy gets violated? I think so, yeah. Um, we see it in financial institutions. They are a lot less um, likely to be attacked than um, other 
in uh, companies from other areas because they don't have the fines attached to not doing it correctly. Um, and it's to me, it's kind of obvious that um, as soon as there's something hurting the sea level uh, people, um, they will look after the implementation to be done and not um, skipping over it or, or taking the easy pass because it's cost, going to cost them if they if they skip that. Yeah, and we're starting to see in the in the United States um, as we record this is shortly after the news of um, the government deciding to go after. Solar winds and, and their former CISO for the for the breaches that happened several years ago, and a lot of interesting conversation coming out of that now about is that really going to help improve the situation? Is it just going to convince the the really good CISOs to not become CISOs um, so that they can avoid having to be caught in that situation themselves? Is it going to say, hey? As a CISO, I don't want to get stuck with this, so I'm going to put the proper controls, the policies in place. I'm going to make sure they're enforced. I'm going to make sure that they're they're regularly audited so that I don't get blamed for it and get taken down by it. Um, that's a full-time job by that point. So are they really contributing to the security or are they just becoming policy masters um, becomes a concern there. And um, I've heard people concerned about the the ability for companies to be transparent about security. Um, you know, one of the things that that security that I love about the security industry is that everybody kind of works together. It doesn't matter if we're competitors. It doesn't matter if, um, you know, I, I'm going to reveal a big secret about my environment. I'm going to share that information with others so that others can be as secure. I, I love that community aspect of things. But will that start getting tamped down? Will, will we not be seeing really detailed um, after action reports around some of these breaches that help, you know, I could sit and sit and read the Okta um, report about what happened there and learn a few things about what other companies should be doing. Um, you know, the whole Gmail thing, for example, um, you know, that shouldn't have even been possible. I mean, let's, let's be honest. There's ways to block that, to stop that from happening. They should have, they should have gone to that extent. And, you know, if the CISO at Okta at some point gets, gets nailed to the wall for that, Again, that's incentive for the next CISO to say, we're going to make sure to not only have the policy, but also have the proper controls in place. So I want to ask the question, Brian, because this is something that kind of comes up. We know that if someone violates some kind of a reporting clause for their business, it could be the SEC that gets involved if it's a publicly traded company, or it could be some other um, government organization, maybe the IRS or something like that. Who gets involved in these kinds of situations? Because it wasn't that long ago. In fact, it was this year that the SEC finally released reporting guidelines for breaches. Because it used to be that you didn't have to report it unless it was considered material or you know you you had something to go on. And basically, what was happening is is that these organizations were holding the report as long as they they could in order to avoid doing things like impacting the stock price. And now we have reporting guidelines in place that say you must disclose it within, I think it was like 48 hours of detection. And they're still using the material word because they don't want to cause a panic. But, you know, is is part of this issue coming down to the fact that, you know, like we've seen this year, there was never really any teeth from an or an oversight organization to say, you screwed up and now you're going to pay for it. Did did the thing like the SolarWinds CISO getting indicted and, and all this other stuff finally kind of pull back the, the veil on this and tell everyone these are real problems that need real solutions? I, I hope so. I genuinely hope that's that's going to be the reaction and say, 
wait a second, we've we've allowed, and and this is the case with with governmental controls. Always, it's it's always going to lag behind. Um, you know, we're starting into the AI space now too with with government regulations. And to their credit, in the U.S., they're trying to get ahead of it a little bit. Um, you know, not or rather not get as far behind. Um, so cybersecurity is an area where the government just hasn't stepped up in the U.S. to really stay in front of that kind of stuff to 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 guide the market in in a proper way. I would say, um, obviously, having CISA, the, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, in place is is helping to lead from behind to some extent. Um, you know, they're they're there to help set guidelines to help inform people. As far as I understand, they're they're not they don't have the jurisdiction to to impose fines or anything like that. Maybe they 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 are given that that ability. Um, maybe it's the the Greater Homeland Security Department that that has that because they have enforcement capabilities. Um, but I agree, there's there's got to be somebody that gets some teeth that they can start biting some of these places and and for it to be a little bit more um, more direct and and not something that takes. What five six years with Solar Winds before before any charges got filed before any legal action happened? Um, you know, at this point, everybody that was involved in it is no longer there. They can't in, in, enforce any changes in that that given situation. They're just hopeful that they can set a precedence for future. Yeah, and we have the same thing over in, in Europe. Um, there's laws being now um, pushed into the member countries to um, enforce at least the critical infrastructure uh, operators to be more um, aware of what they're doing and and, um, and and do more security things than they used to. Um, but still, in my in my opinion, the best way to get people to follow security guidelines is to have a ransomware attack because afterwards you know what they're good for. The, the unfortunate thing with with that approach to it, which I agree a lot of companies rely on that, is that that only helps close that one gap. Um, is it going to help with the next breach? And that's that's what we need to do is is get in front of the next breach and not rely on just plugging the holes after they've already been been used. And that's one of the things we're actually starting to see is that policy enforcement actually does have an impact on this because by closing those holes, you're forcing the attackers to find uh, novel ways to continue those attacks. Um, you know, whether it is, you know, specifically targeted social engineering attacks like voice impersonation or spear phishing or things like that, or maybe even investigating ways to get insider access. I mean, that's one of the things that we've heard about some of the big breaches this year is that uh, Lapsus, uh, the group, was uh, notorious for either bribing individuals or finding ways to root around in their, their details to gain access to them. Going even so far, I remember, I believe it was an Uber employee, like they just kept sending him two-factor authentication codes and eventually texted him in, on, in WhatsApp and said, if you don't give us one of these codes, we'll keep doing this until your phone explodes kind of thing. <laughs> um, you know, they, they're getting more and more creative because they realize that once the technology controls are in place, where are the weak links in this? And it's the people, for lack of a better term. It's, you know, it's someone who maybe not as, as easily educated, can be intimidated, honestly can be bribed. You know, hey, man, we'll give you 500 bucks if you just let us into this system for like an hour. And and who knows what kind of damage you can cause or worse yet, what kind of persistence you can achieve given that amount of time. So are are these security policies, you know, in effect, should they be targeting 
more limitations on people to prevent attackers from eventually deciding that technology is not the best answer and it's the people we need to go after. I'm not a big fan of blaming all security things on people. Um, people, every system has its flaws. People just have the most consistent flaws. Um, if, if I want to go breach company A, they may have, you know, they're going to have some hole somewhere. I just don't know if it's going to be the same one that I found at company B. When it comes to human beings, we all, to your point, bribery, pressure, those types of things is, is fairly universal. Um, you know, different people have different motivations and, and different approaches to it, but at some level, we're all, we're all susceptible there. So yes, education is still absolutely critical. Um, I, I've become not being a fan of blaming people because that makes them defensive. That makes them want to um, not do the right things necessarily. Um, what we need to do is make sure we have the proper controls around the people to make sure um, that, that they, they can't do bad things. You know, the whole two turn turn two keys at the same time approach to things and things like that. And we're seeing more and more applications starting to institute those types of things. Um, I mean, not to call specific vendors out, but we're starting to see like in the backup vendors, um, some of that two, two key type systems where if you want to delete a backup, we want to force it so that two people have to agree to it. Um, immutability is a huge one there so that once you create that backup, it's not going anywhere until it's time is up. Um, to make sure that the human element can, we could be protected from the human element, but still need to rely on the human element to do those things. Yeah, totally agree. Um, blaming people is always um, something I tell my customers to avoid after a ransomware attack, because some of them want to go down that road, like who's who's uh, um, responsible for us being in this kind of trouble. So I usually tell them, hey, take a look at the airline industry. They What they do is they try to prevent things from happening again um, and not blaming people because that's counterproductive. Um, you don't get to a good system if you're not learning from your mistakes and um, blaming people always makes it hard to learn from your mistakes because they won't talk to you and tell you what they actually did. So um, that's, I think, one of the things we still have to learn in many areas. Yeah, and that's actually kind of going back to some things that we've discussed. One of the ways that you can do that is by creating blameless postmortems. You're like, this was nobody's fault. We're going to ex examine what happened, but we also have to make sure that it doesn't happen again. You know, what kind of controls were in place to prevent this from happening? You know, um, something as simple as, I don't know, making sure that uh, your BGP routes can't be withdrawn because of simple DNS problems that then lock you out of your data center and require you to cut into it with an angle grinder. I mean, that's never happened, right? Never. Definitely not. So yeah. as security professionals, I guess the best way to combat this problem is to make people aware that security policies do need to be followed, but they also need to be living documents that are um, updated as needed to address new requirements and roles and new threats. What's one piece of advice you can give to the people who are writing these security policies to ensure that they are followed and enforced and not ignored? Well, the, the one thing we tell people now here in Germany, because also the highest institution for computer security tells it that way, is stop forcing people to change passwords. Just let them have a long password, like 12 letters or more, 
make it complex, but don't force them to change it so that they can they have a chance to remember it and do things like this, um, like making it easier for people to be more secure and not making them angry because they have to change something like a password all the time. Yeah, I, I would agree with, you know, there are best practices out there and, and keeping up on those best practices, um, what, what government agencies, what other vendors are doing is is critical. Um, I'll expand that a little bit and say, as breaches happen, as other companies go through the pain of, of a breach and having to deal with it, go read those postmortems. Um, there's, there's tons of great learning in there. Um, you know, I've, I've read a couple of them over the last last few days and just sitting there reading them is like, oh man, I remember when I was an admin, we, we did this kind of thing, or we weren't good at making sure that, you know, critical infrastructure that we had protected with, with DR and um, active clustering wasn't dependent on something that wasn't um, because that, that can lead to a downtime because there's, there's a dependency. So Understanding what others are going through and trying to learn from them and then actually implementing those into your policies, into your procedures, um, into your systems, I think is is a super good way to stay ahead of it and not get trapped by something that is already a known issue. The dance of trying to keep your security policies up to date and your users safe is no different than trying to deal with a four-year-old. They want to go everywhere and they want to do everything and you want to make sure that they don't get hurt. But sometimes they're going to do everything they can to ignore what you're telling them because they think they know better than you. And it's up to you to decide how much structure you need to put in place to keep them safe and how much you need to do to let them figure it out on their own. Except the difference here is that you're not touching a hot stove. You could potentially expose millions of lines of customer data and find yourself fined quite efficiently from a regulatory body. Security policies need to be easy to understand easy to follow, and comprehensive enough that you can account for almost everything. Because you can never truly make everything 100% safe. But if you make it safe enough that people don't run into problems, maybe, just maybe, they'll follow the policy and not even realize that there's a policy at all. That will just about do it for this episode of the On-Premise IT Podcast. I want to thank our guests for joining us today. You can always find the latest episode on our website at gestaltit.com. You can also follow us on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash gestaltitvideo, and subscribe to us in a podcast application. Just search for On-Premise IT Podcast, and yes, we are using On-Premise correctly. We should be back in a couple of weeks with another great episode. Until then, take care of yourselves, and we'll see you soon.